Father, from this moment on, from this point in the rest of my life, I surrender and submit my life to you. Draw me close. Hold me close. Let me be yours because I want to be and long to be part of a people whose dreams are greater than their memories. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. We are continuing our series of studies in the New Testament book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible with you, could you turn to Philippians chapter 1 this morning? And again, you'll find it on page 1826, Philippians chapter 1, 1826 of the church Bible. Last Sunday morning, we began a new series of studies in Philippians. And today we're coming to focus on the second, second part of chapter 1 beginning at verse 12. The apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he writes these words. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His Holy Word. Earlier this week, I came across an article online, and I had to read it two or three times to really grasp what it was saying. And the opening lines, in essence, said, the continent of Australia is moving. And I thought, wow, is it going to Hong Kong or Vietnam? What is going on? And of course, it then in considerable detail, outlined the fact that across the world, since its very inception, we've had such a thing as continental drift. And Australia moves around 2.75 inches each year towards the northeast. Here in the United States, we move to the west, and we move 
one inch. And when I was reading it, I thought, well, this is fascinating and interesting, but is it of any significance? And then further on down I went into the article, I discovered this, that a number of industries in Australia coordinated their GPS systems back in 1994 and haven't coordinated them since. And if you own a large farm and you have driverless tractors or combine harvesters and they are automated, they are robotic, and come harvest time, they will move in coordination with their GPS. But the bad news is, is that they will be out approximately five feet. And then it becomes a bit interesting. I'm telling you that for this reason. Choir, join us with this. If you look at where you're sitting this morning, and you've been sitting there for 25 years, the chances are the person who's 25 inches away is sitting in your seat. <laughs> now, I think you need to stare at them meaningfully and encourage them not to do that next Sunday. Now, for all my silliness in the midst of this, my point is this, that sometimes change comes into our personal lives and into society and into our culture in a manner that is subtle and slow and silent. And we don't always see it. But the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, is writing 10 years after he first was there. And he is seeking to bring into their life change that is of significance and value, change that is thoroughly engaging and impactful. He is highlighting for them throughout this epistle what are the things that define them as a church of God and as a people of God. What are those core values? What are those defining principles? As we get further and further into Philippians over the next few weeks, you're going to see more of that concept at work. If you were with us last Sunday, you will know that the Apostle Paul is writing around the year AD 60, 10 years as we've already noted since he was first in Philippi. Philippi is, you can still go there today, the ruins are there from those early days back in the first century. It was named after the father of Alexander the Great, it was a Roman colony. And Paul, when he's writing, writes in warm, deep, personal, uh, with warm, deep, personal tones. He's encouraging. In fact, throughout the epistle, one of the major themes is that of joy and rejoicing, and all of that you find in Philippians. And as we unpack it, notice how he begins at verse 12. He writes this, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I want to stop right there because we're in danger of missing the significance of verse 12. Look at it again. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And you, quite naturally, are saying, now, 
Paul, sometimes I know that when you write, your writings are not always easy to follow, and sometimes it comes across as a bit of a paradox. But Paul, this comes across as more of an absurdity than a paradox. Paul, we know you. We know you well. We know that you're an A-type personality. We know that you are a great achiever. You get up early in the morning. You run fast all day. You are the motivator supreme, evangelist to the Gentiles, an apostle of God. You're forever visiting congregations, establishing new churches, writing epistles. But Paul, all of that has come to an end. Your ministry and life and work have stopped. You've been arrested, incarcerated. You're about to go on trial for your life. So, Paul, what does it mean when you say, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel? Well, from our perspective, it doesn't. That's crazy. And I suspect that was the immediate response from the people in Philippi. And then I think they would take a day or so to think about it and begin to ask deeper questions. When you were with us, did you not teach us that God would lead and guide and protect His children? Didn't you talk to us of answered prayer and forgiven sin? Didn't you highlight for us what it meant to have God reach down and take us by the hand each moment of every day? Well, Paul, if you taught that to us, how is that working out for you? You're in a Roman prison cell. You may be sentenced to death at the end of your trial. What do you mean? Everything that has happened to you has really served to advance the gospel. How can this even be remotely true? That's what's going on here. What are the blessings of the Christian life? Well, notice what the rest of the passage says. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains... Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. How can that be true? Well, I like to imagine in my mind that whenever one of the Roman prison guards were giving Paul his food or helping to clean out his cell, a conversation would begin. And the guard would say to him, now, that doesn't sound like an Italian accent. Why are you in here? Where do you come from? What, is, what have you been charged with? You're about to go into an imperial trial. What did you do? Did you murder a senator? Did you run away with imperial funds? Why are you here? I imagine the Apostle Paul very gently, very persuasively, beginning a conversation like this. I come from Damascus in Syria, and more recently, I've been living in and around the area of Jerusalem and Caesarea in ancient Palestine. 
And I'm here because I once met a man. I met a man called Jesus of Nazareth, and he utterly transformed, spectacularly renewed and changed my life. And I met him on the road to Damascus when I was going home. An amazing thing for me is this, that not only did I meet him, but he had died and then come back to life. And I was arresting and persecuting his followers until I met him for myself. And at that point, my life changed. And you can imagine some of the guards smiling and nodding, winking at each other and saying, okay, he met a dead man. Now we understand exactly why you're in prison. You're a lunatic. You've lost it. They might be treating him with skepticism. They might be treating him with disdain, thinking, he's not even worth bothering about. But please understand this. His lifestyle, his character... His personality was being watched each moment of each day by the guards in that Roman prison cell. And I imagine them talking to each other and saying, there is something different about this man. He seems so content. It's as if nothing bothers him. There is something going on there. And as that relationship between guard and prisoner developed, I imagine they would begin to open up a little and he would begin to say to them, I want you to know this. I'm praying for you. I'm sorry you're going through this in your personal life, but I'm praying for you. And here was the Apostle Paul engaging in radical, gospel-driven personal relationships, and the gospel was impacting the Roman guards. Look at the passage again. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. The people in and around the prison discovered that folks who were visiting Paul from time to time, dropping off parchments and a pen or a cloak to wear or bringing him some food, they would be watching them as well. Do these Christians live up to what they say? Was their walk equaling their talk? And throughout the whole palace guard, they began to understand Christ was alive. He was the Savior of the world and transformed lives. So, before we go any further into Philippians, let me ask you this, please. When was the last time you shared your faith? In a very natural way, someone in your neighborhood, someone in the office, perhaps a family friend, going through a tough time, and you say to them, I'm sorry you're going through this. I've really nothing to compare it with, and I know how much that hurts and how painful it is, but I want you to know this. 
I'm praying for you. I'm there for you. That has an impact. That's what it means to engage intentionally in personal, gospel-driven relationships. And they will look at your life and ask, does the walk equal the talk? And when it does, it has an impact. Had an impact for Paul, it has an impact on our lives as well. And then Paul takes the folks, his readers at Philippi, to another level. And what comes next is fairly controversial, but follow with me. Verse 15. And Paul is writing of the situation and the context of the church in Rome, and he writes this. It is true that some here preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, and the latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing he can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. And then he adds, but what does it matter The important thing is, in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Folks in Rome stirring it up for Paul, were folks in Philippi stirring it up for Paul, saying, you really shouldn't listen to him. After all, he's in a Roman prison cell, and let's remember, there's no smoke without fire, and you can imagine that whole conversation taking place. And then Paul adds, the jealousy, the rivalry, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The important thing is, Paul, that, is that Christ is preached. The Apostle Paul is not sitting back, playing, being victimized or frustrated by his circumstances. He is looking for God in the daily, and in the everyday situation. And Paul can do that for this reason, because he's saying it really doesn't matter. And notice what he says next. He says it doesn't really matter for this reason. He says, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Now, that theme of joy and rejoicing, New Testament scholars tell us, is the major theme of this epistle. But I want to tell you this morning, and I'm going out in a little thin ice here, that I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced it's the main theme. It's one of the major themes, but it's not the main theme. Because as I read through this epistle... There are 106 verses from chapter 1 to the end of the epistle. And on over 40 occasions, the title, the name, Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ is used again and again and again and again. I think Paul is saying to us this. It is the centrality of Christ in the life of the individual that matters. 
when you have Him at the center of your life, then you understand the supremacy of Christ. Then you find deep and lasting commitment and pleasure in Him. And it's in your relationship with Him that a blessed byproduct of that relationship is joy and rejoicing. It's not joy and rejoicing in itself, but it is deep and all-pervasive, and comprehensive, and it's based solely, innately, inherently on a relationship with Him. Amen? Amen. That's why He says again and again, it's a relationship with Him. And folks, please hear this. As Paul is seeking to clarify and align the folks at Philippi and the biblical principles that they have got, he's aligning them and bringing clarity because of the relationship with Christ. I said moments ago that the apostle is not playing the part of the victim. Nowhere in this epistle do you hear him saying, Woe is me, why aren't you helping me? I'm in terrible distress. And the situation is dire. But he's looking for the divine in the daily. He's looking for God at work. And he's not sitting back, wringing his hands. He has given over everything, every circumstance, every challenge. He's looking for God in the for the divine in the daily by saying, all that has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance because he has surrendered everything to Christ. And here's the thing I want to close at least this section before we come to our final point this morning with this. Paul has given up, utterly surrendered, trying to orchestrate and engineer every circumstance of his life. He has. He stopped telling everyone how they should live their lives he stopped manipulating. He stopped emotional blackmail. And he hands it all over to Christ and leaves it with him because he refuses to live in the past. But he's looking for the divine in the daily. And notice where he goes next as we draw our study to a close this morning. He takes us further on from verse into verse 20, and he says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. And then he adds another of those incredibly memorable verses from this opening chapter. And he finishes with, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Talk about the centrality of Christ in our lives. It's right there. Not only has He modeled it for us, He is powerfully reminding us of the impact it's had in His life. Five or six months ago, I received a text, and a man asked if he could come and see me, and when we sat down, he said to me, Richard, I was told on Thursday I have about six months to live. The future does not look bright. He is struggling physically. Last week, his son had 
a baby boy, and he's down visiting the family. And he texted me yesterday to say how wonderful, how exciting it is to see this wee one. And he was hoping the Lord would spare him till that birth. And when we have had an opportunity to sit down and talk, just the two of us, he talks about the fear of the future. And he tells me again and again, Richard, I'm not afraid to die. He says, in fact, there's a point I can't honestly wait. He says, I know that sounds silly and selfish, but I honestly can't wait to be in the Lord's presence. He usually adds, I'm not looking forward to the process of dying and the pain involved, but I can't wait. And what you are seeing there is the gospel being worked out in everyday living. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so I wonder, if you're sitting there this morning and saying, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I'm following what you're saying. I think I've grasped what the passage is saying, but I honestly have to tell you, I do not have that amount of faith. I really don't. I'm not the Apostle Paul. I'm not this man who's terminally ill. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. I don't lead worship. I can't play an instrument. I just don't have that amount of faith. And if that's you this morning, please hear this. It is not the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. And when the object of your faith is the risen Christ, and He becomes the very center of your life, all of the other circumstances, all of the situations and the challenges that come your way, it is so much easier for you then to say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And to die, first of all, to self and hand it over to him. And that's what's going on right here. You may have shifted in your faith over the last five or six months. It may just have been an inch or two, or a step or two, and you have been drifting, and you're not where you need to be. Well, let me encourage you this morning. It is time to surrender it again to Him. It is time to give it up again. It is time to hand it over to Him and say, Father, from this moment on, from this point in the rest of my life, I surrender and submit my life to You. Draw me close. Hold me close. Let me be Yours, because I want to be and long to be part of a people whose dreams are greater than their memories. And it happens when we commit ourselves to and surrender ourselves to that core distinctive value and say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for this powerful reminder in Philippians this morning of your love and your grace and your goodness to us. Father, strengthen us. Enable us by your grace and allow us, please, to leave this morning encouraged. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer.